Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm pleased to say we have Samuel Morris Brown on the show, and we'll be talking about his book, In Heaven as It Is on Earth, Joseph Smith and the Early Mormon Conquest of Death. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hi, Sam. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? Good to be with you today. It's good to be with you as well. We're talking with Sam Brown today about his book, In Heaven As It Is on Earth, Joseph Smith and the Early Mormon Conquest of Death. It turns out that I've known Sam for a long time, about 20 years, although we haven't been in touch for 20 years. But uh, when OUP, Oxford University Press, pitched me this book, I thought, that's an awfully familiar name. It's a very common name, though, so what do I know? And then I saw Sam's picture, and I'm like, I know that guy. <laughs> so Sam, it's really just so good. It's so good to uh, to be back in touch with you, and I want to congratulate you on this book. Mormonism is something that we talked about back in the day. I don't know if you remember. I've always had a an interest in it, uh, partially because a Mormon saved my life once. That's really true. That's a true I story. Had, I had forgotten the story about the Mormon saving your life. Yeah, a Mormon saved my life. They've once. saved many lives, I'm sure, over yeah, the years, yeah, I mean, as of people of most religious traditions. Yeah, quite literally, a Mormon, I, a Mormon I that story. saved my life. And uh, and so I've always been, and we had close Mormon friends when I was growing up, and it, actually it was these people. He was a doctor. And so, and, and so I've always been interested in the subject of it, so I was pleased to see your book. I must say I was surprised because, uh, and people should probably know this, uh, you, you're also a doctor, um, which prompts the question, do you ever sleep? Uh, so, you know, doctors writing books and also having kids and all this other stuff. That's a, that's a lot of stuff. Um, uh, I expected that much from you, having known you 20 years ago. So uh, anyway, I wondered if you could kick off the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Well, I am a child of the Rockies. I was born in the South, but didn't last long there as my family moved to Montana. And then uh, was an adolescent in Utah and then moved to Boston where you met me in college. And then lived most of my adult life uh, in Boston, did uh, linguistics and Russian as an undergrad and took a Russian history course from you, and then felt called to do medical school. Originally thought I would be a global health guy, like a little Paul Farmer, who was my <laughs> great idol in medical school in Boston. And then met a wonderful woman and... Uh, started having kids and it made things tricky for doing the global health career and realized that I was drawn to the life and death battles that are waged in the intensive care unit and ended up doing my specialization in intensive care, which mostly means that I run life support systems and take care of people who have a high chance without our care of passing away within a few days and uh, am primarily an academic. I do research 75% of my time on life-threatening infection, what we call sepsis and septic shock. Mm-hmm. and mostly am looking for subtle patterns in the heart rate and the blood pressure that will give us insights into how best to treat patients that are in that sort of life-threatening crisis. Now, in the intensive care unit where I take care of patients about one week out of five uh, and in my research on life-threatening disease, I commonly encounter big problems people that are facing the chance that they may not survive much longer. And that strikes you at the core as a human being uh, and makes you stop and think. And so as a way to try to process the magnificent courage of my patients and the 
existential fear that we experience together. I have also been quietly active in medical ethics and humanities. And because I love to read and uh, love to think about the history of things, I've used cultural history and intellectual history as a way to try to wrap my head around these sorts of topics. And uh, it was my wife, who's a religious historian, uh, and I were talking back in 2004 uh, about a variety of topics. And at that point, I was very interested in Mircea Eliade and his notion that um, ancestors helped to define the religious community of what he calls homo religiosus, you know, the religious human beings. And it occurred to me that my natal tradition of Mormonism uh, occurred to both of us as we talked had a distinctive idea about what angels are, as opposed to Judaism or Christianity or Islam, there was a very strong tradition in Mormonism that angels are actually dead people brought back in some way, or they resurrected, or they spirits, that's not always spelled out, but, but they're recognizable people, rather than ontologically distinct types of beings. In traditional Christianity, an angel is as different from a human in its essence as a human is from a horse. They're just different kinds of things. And in Mormonism, its founder, uh, Joseph Smith, and those who followed felt strongly that angels were, in fact, not a different kind of being. And as we talked through what that might mean, what these ideas about angels and Mormonism might reflect about the differences in worldview between Mormons and their peers in Christianity, it got me thinking more carefully about what possible role Mormon founders encounters with death might have had in his process of creating, revealing, constructing this religion. And my own experiences with patients at the deathbed made this extremely real to me. It wasn't theoretical that people could die or that we could want them to persist in some way after they died. It's very real. Mm -hmm. And I wondered whether it was as real for Joseph Smith and the early Mormons as it was for the people that I met in my practice. And that's how this book came to be the initial expression of my thinking about medical ethics and humanities. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a fascinating story. And even to put it in a broader context, I think you're too humble to mention this, but let me put it in the simplest way possible. We, as modern Americans, most of us, or I don't know about most of us, but people in, um, let's say, academia, uh, don't have any idea what to think about death, except not to think about it. We, we don't really have uh, a sort of worldview that includes doing anything but fighting it. Um, and uh, that is a sort of a new thing. And it's also kind of a disturbing thing. You know, I've lost both my mother and my father now, and I did not know what to think about it. Uh, I didn't know what to feel. There were really no rituals in either case. Uh, I didn't really talk about it much with my sister. There was really no, there was no script for it for me. And uh, I think I wanted a script of some type, or at least I wanted the allowance of somebody to talk or think about it or help me think about it. So in, in any event, your book helped me think about it. Um, so well, I'm glad. That's been my experience, too, that we, you know, uh, Daniel Callahan, who's a prominent bioethicist, if I'm remembering his phrasing right, says, we talk around death, yeah. we don't talk about death. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Uh, and, and I think we do that at our peril. We lose something morally as a people. And personally, when we confront bereavement, we lose something when we don't have the capacity to put it into a context and talk it through. That's very very well said. I know that in the case of my father, he died very suddenly, um, but all of the discussion about my mother and her, not, not entirely lingering death, it took her a couple of months to die, was about preventing her from dying. There's really no other discussion. Um, I don't think anybody prepared her, and they didn't prepare us. Uh, so that was a, you know, that was a, 
It was a hard experience. I put it when down. you fear something so much you can't name it, yeah. you give it power. Yeah. And I'm not doubting myself as a 12-year-old anymore, but <laughs> my my memory from my children uh, reporting uh, the results of their reading to me is that Harry Potter faces a, a, a nasty demon played by Ray Fiennes, yeah. and that part of his power, this I think it's Voldemort character, has is that people cannot name him. Yeah, that's right. And and I think I have a vague memory that this hero Potter kid names Voldemort mm-hmm. and his capacity to name him eliminates some of his power. Mm-hmm. And I think when we can't confront the possibility that we die, mm-hmm. we lose the capacity to live healthily at that period. There's a prominent palliative care specialist named Ira Bayek, who's at Dartmouth, who talks a lot about the fact that life has phases and there are activities appropriate to each of those phases. You know, infancy, childhood, primary school, secondary school, young adulthood, etc. But closing up is a phase of life Mm -hmm. and there are activities appropriate to that. There are forgivenesses to request and forgivenesses to bestow. There are communications of love and there are reflections on the meaning of the life we have lived. Now in the old days, this was all about salvation. If you couldn't give a credible account of your life that lasted up until the moment you were leaving, then Satan and his minions were preparing a place for you in the tract houses in hell. Mm -hmm. And uh, despite the strenuous exertions of some in our society, I think it's unlikely that we will become Victorians again. <laughs> but I think even as we even as we refuse to be neo-Victorian, we've got to be thoughtful that we don't lose the capacity to reflect on the meaning of our lives and the meaning of our lives to each other at the time when we are in the process of leaving. Mm -hmm. And if we can't leave take, if we can't bid farewell in a powerful way, there's a void that I think is left in our lives. My dad died when I was 18 and I was fortunate, even though I had no cultural scripting for it, there was a sort of spontaneous leave-taking that occurred. Forgiveness given and forgiveness received and tender reflections on what had been and what could have been. And that, I think, made it much easier for me to confront as a young adult a life without mm-hmm. uh, a father mm-hmm. and i'm i'm sorry that when your parents left there there wasn't available to you that kind of even if it's not a ritual again i don't i don't think it's likely that we're going to return to the religious culture again with some exceptions in modern society of the early 19th century mm-hmm. but i think there can be not quite as religiously specific types of things we can do that will honor the significance of a life as it begins to wrap up mm-hmm. Yeah, that was all very well said, too. I would also say that, in my case, I wasn't really ready to hear any such teaching, um, yeah. even if it had been presented to me, and it probably was. Uh, I just wasn't ready. Yeah. But, you know, I'm reminded I read a lot of Buddhism now for whatever reason, uh, and one of the four thoughts that you are supposed to bring to mind so that you will practice correctly, practice in this case mean, meaning live, is that uh, you could die at any moment. You're supposed to keep that mm-hmm. in your mind at all times. Like, you will, you could die. Do you want to die like this? You're angry. Do you want to die like this? You know, and, and I, I, I find it really. I find that, especially when I'm about to throw a fit or do something. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I find that very useful. Like, no, you know what? I don't. I don't want to die like this. So it could be taken away at any time. So let's get to Joseph Smith and that's, the more. That's right out of the book, the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. Yeah, that yeah, notion yeah. of in the midst of life, we are. Yeah, death. that's right. Interesting. Uh, okay. Um, it's funny. Go I was ahead. writing about the Book of Common just the other day, and I didn't make the association. So let's get to Joseph Smith and the, the, the Mormons. Can you give a very, very brief thumbnail sketch of the early history that is prior to getting to Utah of and prior to the death of Joseph Smith of, of Mormonism? 
Mormonism arises at a period of intense cultural and religious change. This is the early 19th century. America has just become an independent republic and is in the process not only of liberating itself from Britain, but also of moving beyond what was once its Calvinist, Puritan, Congregationalist uh, establishment religiously. And in that period, the Methodists and the Baptists are making huge strides against more traditional faiths like Congregationalists, Presbyterians, and Anglicans. And there's an incredible foment in the what was then the Western frontier. Uh, now we would think of it as the East Coast, but uh, <laughs> Western, Western New York down into Ohio. This area, some people have compared it to California in the 1960s. Sort of any possible religious idea would find it at least a few adherents, and everybody was searching for a new truth. And Joseph Smith is the son of some basically, basically the Yankee equivalent of sharecroppers, sort of downwardly mobile, very economically tenuous people who were deeply religious, but not terribly churched. His mom was a Presbyterian. His dad was a sort of free-thinking seeker. They were immersed in the folk culture of early America, which feels very different. When when you actually sit down and read these documents, you see these are a very different group of people. So Smith sees the religious foment, and he sees Methodists, and he liked the Methodists most of all. He sees the Methodists in their revival camp meetings, and he sees the Baptists competing with Methodists, and he sees the the Congregationalist Presbyterians trying to resist the encroachments of the Methodists, and it feels to him that this is a sign that Christianity has lost its way. Christianity is no longer the united, clear church that Christ founded, and he feels called uh, through a vision or a visitation that he has of God to restore the ancient Christian church. And part of the way that God, according to Joseph Smith's account, makes it possible for Smith to restore the ancient church of Christ is to simultaneously have Smith restore an ancient scripture called the Book of Mormon that is basically like a set of lost books of the Bible that describe the life of a group that left Jerusalem shortly before the Babylonian exile. Contrary to popular misunderstanding, it's not actually a ten tribes narrative mm -hmm. per se, but there's a group of, of Hebrew pilgrims that leave Jerusalem and head to America, live in America for about a thousand years, and then are largely destroyed in uh, internecine wars. Smith uh, indicates that an angel sent by God has brought him metal plates on which this record is uh, transcribed, and then he translates and publishes in 1830 the Book of Mormon. In 1830, he founds the Church of Christ, which later becomes the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and then sets about trying to prepare the world for Christ's imminent return. They were very focused on Christ returning soon, and to do so tries to create a new Jerusalem, a Zion society. And he tries in Kirtland, it doesn't, Kirtland, Ohio. Ohio, it doesn't work. He tries in uh, Jackson County, Missouri, it doesn't work. Tries again, just uh, a couple counties away in Missouri, it doesn't work. And again and again, it doesn't work because he's such a controversial figure with such radical ideas about how society and religion should be structured that he doesn't make a great neighbor. And they tend to get run out on a rail or actually at times with uh, frank physical violence and death until they end up in uh, Illinois, western Illinois, on a little swampy bend in the Mississippi River where they found his final Zion, uh, which they call Nauvoo, which they understand to mean a beautiful place in uh, biblical Hebrew. And then he finally achieves what he'd been after uh, for... 10 years, a strong city 
that's organized from the ground up to be the Mormon New Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, again, controversy and dissension in the ranks. And ultimately, he is murdered by a vigilante mob in 1844 uh, under allegations that he's a theocrat and a polygamist and that and fundamentally that he is just not American. He's a danger to the American uh, state and vigilante justice, which was a common way of administering local Ooh. justice, was invoked to eliminate him. And then he's replaced by my third great-grandfather, Brigham Young, a fascinating really? figure. I who didn't know just, that. I'd forgotten that. I'm sure yeah. you told me that before. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who, who just this week, I think, Harvard has published John Turner's wonderful biography of Brigham Young called uh, Brigham Young Pioneer Prophet, I think. Uh-huh. And uh, I'll let... Uh, I'll let Turner tell that story, uh-huh. but uh, but then Brigham Young takes over the main body of of the church, and that's where you start to get into familiar Mormonism, mm-hmm. which is Utah and yeah. and white people settling the West mm-hmm. and, and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I see. So uh, that was a heck of a good sketch, honestly. Let's move on then to the topic of setting up, so to say, uh, the um, Mormon. I want to say theology. In general structure, it's Christian. You have a God. It is monotheistic. Uh, You have um, various revealed texts, uh, the Old Testament, the New Testament. You have Jesus. Uh, You have the Hebrews. That is the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. And then we have this new revelation that an angel brings to Smith. Can you take us into how he started to think about life and afterlife? Yeah. I think one of the one of the things I tried to do in writing the book was to think through what Smith and his message would have meant to Smith and his peers and compatriots. <laughs> Always and a good idea. Try, yeah, yeah. But it, interesting, even though it strikes us as second nature, it's just not how it, the story has been told mm-hmm. uh, historically. Uh, so I think as I you know this is an ongoing issue right people way on the right that are uncomfortable with any heresy say that Mormons are not Christian and and Mormons sometimes a little obtusely say well of course we're Christian without understanding the importance of the creeds to the definition of mm-hmm. Christianity for many people um and so for me when people ask me I think of contemporary Mormonism as either non-credal Christianity or Mormon Christianity or uh, as a Christian heresy. Mm -hmm. And that's talking about contemporary Mormonism. Mm -hmm. When I look at them, when I look at them in their context originally, they are an anti-Protestant Reformation. Mm -hmm. They're a restorationist group that is highly anti-Protestant. And the trick is when you're anti-Protestant, that means that to a large extent, you're Protestant, right? Uh, Jay-Z Smith in, uh, at Chicago, who I think is just a brilliant theorist of religion, wrote a wonderful essay called What a Difference Difference Makes. <laughs> and he talks about the fact that the title. most strenuous... It's a, he's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. I, if you haven't read him, I would read Smith. Um, his point is that the most strenuous disputes about difference are generally among groups that to outsiders look very, very similar. Mm -hmm. It's that old joke about the people who meet in, uh, I can't remember where it is, Europe somewhere, and they talk about how they're both, you know, they're Christian and they're Lutheran and then they're which synod. And then finally they figure out that they're one schism separated 10 years ago and they say, you know, I hate you, uh, get out of my house, right? That it's the stuff that's closest that is most important to dispute. Um, so Smith inhabits a world where Calvinism, which had been the dominant theology in his part of America for a couple of centuries is on the wane. The Methodists and, to some extent, the Baptists are whittling away at the influence of Calvinism. 
and the early American Republic is this period where everybody assumes Calvinism is this horrible thing, except the Calvinists, of course, <laughs> uh, even though they no longer really engage Calvinism, they engage the caricature of Calvinism that has evolved over the course of the development of anti-Calvinism. Mm -hmm. And Smith then is doing battle with Calvinism primarily uh, and secondarily doing battle with the Methodists. And, you know, they're called Arminian. The, the basic debate, and there are many, but one of the basic debates between Calvinism and Arminianism is whether everything is truly predestined. In Calvinism, God is perfect, and we are not, and nothing we do has any sway on God's decision-making. So the saved are saved, and the not saved are not saved, and nothing they do has any influence. Mm -hmm. And the Arminians push back against that notion. They say, no, there. it does feel to us as if it's at least possible for people to lose salvation visibly. And, and they have these personal experiences of people who live good lives and they, they donate to the local church and they do everything well and then they go off and have an affair and there's a child outside of wedlock and they've fallen from grace. And Arminianism was in part a way to think through the fact that people change over the course of their lives. And for Smith, the Calvinists were just wrong. It felt to him that God was perfect, but that human beings contain an element of that perfection. Mm -hmm. And Smith strongly rejected the notion that human beings are depraved. And that was an important part of Calvinism. And, you know, the caricatures get silly. They're, Calvinism is a beautiful theological tradition. Uh, but it's also important to remember that people separating from Calvinism engage the caricature. It doesn't matter that Calvinism was beautiful and much better than they imagined it. What arises from their encounter with Calvinism was based on their misapprehension of Calvinism. So it seems very clear to me that Joseph Smith rejected strongly the notion of, of fundamental human depravity. He made it one of his few articles of faith that he rejects original sin and the depravity of, of humankind. And concomitant with the notion that God is perfect and humans are depraved was the idea in Calvinism that really dates to Augustine, but Calvin gave it its, its strength for Joseph Smith's period, that when you die, you are finally absorbed into God's perfection. And the, the mechanical details weren't so important. What mattered was that as human beings, you were finally liberated from yourself in some important way, and God was all that mattered. And some scholars call that a theocentric notion of heaven, that when you die, what matters is God. And somewhat so far as to say that looking to your left or your right to see who was worshiping God with you in heaven was a blasphemy. Why would you look to a lesser light of another human being when the source of all light is immediately in front of you? Mm -hmm. And again, that can be a beautiful reflection on the excellencies of, of God. Mm -hmm. For Joseph Smith, it was stupid. <laughs> Fundamentally, Joseph Smith thought we spend our entire lives learning to love other human beings and you're telling me that doesn't count for crap so again this is this is there, there's a lot in smith that really does strike you as just witty and bold and strong and sometimes you do laugh at his his audacity to take on centuries of theological tradition but his basic understanding was in life we are called by the creator to create durable relationships of love and commitment and tender regard with each other mm -hmm. and that is a beautiful thing and is in fact the meaning of life and if that is the meaning of life how is it even possible to conceive an afterlife in which those very relationships are considered irrelevant or blasphemous? Mm -hmm. And you can hear the commonsensical line of that argument, mm -hmm. that 
if it really is true that God has us live through life in order to create durable relationships, how is it possible that he would then desire, as soon as those relationships are threatened by death, and that is the threat par excellence of our relationships. You can always make up after a fight as long as you're both still alive. Right. But once one of you dies, the relationship is threatened. So to Smith, he sees this and he says, the moment these relationships are truly threatened by death, you want to tell me that God and his excellencies wills that those mean nothing. Mm -hmm. And the theologians could have talked him through the fact that these are sublunary attachments and that they are mere echoes of the underlying more important relationship with God. And they could have and did go on until everyone was blue in the face. And Joseph Smith fundamentally rejected that notion. Now, there were other people in his context that were using very similar language, and for a period of some decades, uh, kind of starting out around the time of the Civil War and then extending really up until the progressive era at the end of the 20th century, there was this thing called the domestic heaven. And Elizabeth uh, Stuart Phelps, Gates Ajar is the great book that people like to talk about, but there are many others. So there were, there were lots of other Christian groups in America that were either contemporary with Smith or a little before him or a lot more after him that had that same sort of idea. Uh, but wherever that comes from, I think Mormons would believe that this is, this is something God communicated directly to Smith. Others might uh, see him as listening carefully to Swedenborgianism and the early rise of the domestic heaven, whatever its source that was fundamental to Joseph Smith's idea. Now, what distinguishes Smith from the other Protestants that were... Uh, proposing the domestic heaven is that Smith sounds a lot more sacramental, a lot more Catholic or medieval in his ideas about how it is that we're assured that we can be together. Because not only was he a critic of Calvinism, he was also a critic of Arminianism. And the trick with Arminianism was that even though there was a little more in your hands, it wasn't just, again, this is a caricature of Calvinism, but it wasn't just an arbitrary God bestowing salvation or damnation as he saw fit capriciously. It was... Uh, still the case under Arminianism that if you backslid, if you fell from grace, you would never see your loved ones again. Mm -hmm. Right? It's almost like a ransom note from God. If <laughs> if you don't if you don't pay this ransom, which is to live a pious uh, Protestant life, you'll never see your loved one again. Mm -hmm. And that bothered Smith too, because Smith, as so many other people, recognized that even though human beings aren't fundamentally depraved, they're still imperfect. And and you think about the pain of the deathbed. Someone you love is departing. And they're trying to prepare to go. And for some, all they could think about is, what if my son or my husband or my wife backslides? If they do, this is the last time I will see them. And to have that as your final thought as your departing life struck Smith again as just fundamentally wrongheaded. And what he sought was rituals, sacraments, that would alleviate some of that concern. That if you performed those sacraments, and again, this sounds very Catholic to most Protestants, mm -hmm. if you will obey those sacraments, then you can trust that God will make possible that connection in the afterlife. And you can stop worrying so much about whether your family will be reconstituted in the afterlife. So I see Smith as an early proponent of a very distinctive form of domestic heaven and a very serious sacramental thinker, mm -hmm. someone who saw in medieval Catholicism 
something beautiful and also saw the necessity to overturn this Calvinist idea about theocentrism. Mm-hmm. And that's how I think uh, the encounter between spiritual inspiration and the problems one confronts in one's own life take hold in a theological context. Mm-hmm. And that in the book, I try to map out how these incredibly intimate, personal, powerful, emotional experiences that unfold in a very specific cultural context could mutually constitute and nourish theological reasonings. And even though there's, a, there's sort of a common trope that Mormons have no theology, uh, I think in part that's a, that's a cultured uh, perception that Mormons have been complicit in and critics have been complicit in. They do not have many systematic theologians, although I know some of them and they're great. Uh, but Mormonism does have a theology, and it's a theology that is deeply intertwined with their experience of lived religion and life and its exigencies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that's all very interesting. I... Uh was reminded a little bit of my own Lutheran upbringing. And I guess one question I have, and this may sound simplistic and silly, or maybe Joseph Smith would say stupid. Um, you know, I, I was taught in Sunday school, uh, basically, you know, uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall never die, and so on and so forth. Uh, and that seems quite consistent with what Smith says. Smith Saw She'll never die. The promise. Yeah, that's the part. Yeah. 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 I can't remember the exact words. The I'm sure I'm getting it wrong, but that's something like that. Yeah. That who's, yeah. Whosoever believes in him, I, the, the, that last part. Of shall not fighting. perish. Yeah, shall right, not yeah, perish, yeah. but yeah. shall have its everlasting life or yeah. eternal life. Uh-huh. Um, what was crucial for Smith was that he saw presented to him in the contemporary, mostly Protestant traditions, the notion that salvation and immortality could be vouchsafed individually, and that it would not lose its character if it were stripped of its communal nature. Uh So for Smith, salvation alone was no salvation at all. Mm -hmm. And he saw in the promise of a theocentric heaven, the possibility of immortality mm-hmm. stripped of the power of human relationships. Yeah. And he's, he famously, and this antagonized his critics no end, he famously on multiple occasions said, I would rather go <laughs> to hell with my friends than go to heaven alone. Yeah, that is a great again, uh, summation of the whole thing right there. That, that is a terrific yeah. summation of the whole theology right there. Yeah. I think so. It really is. I think it's yeah. folksy wisdom, but it's incredibly clear-headed yeah. in the way that folksy wisdom can be. And he was saying that this promise of salvation that you communicate, if it cannot extend to all the people you love, what does it mean? And the Calvinists would have responded, well, this is the sin of avaritia. You know, avarice is our version of it, but originally it didn't mean just, you know, you want money. It meant you're attached to things of this earth, and that attachment to things of this earth is distracting you from the things of heaven. Mm-hmm. And an Orthodox Protestant Christian would have appropriately said, but <laughs> you don't get it, right? Hell is a bad place. <laughs> it would be better to be in heaven alone than to be in hell with your friends. Mm -hmm. But the way Smith saw the world was so fundamentally based in relationships that I just don't think it, it just doesn't feel like it was possible for him to conceive of salvation alone as meaning anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a fundamental difference summarized in that little bit of folk wisdom that he offered. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, in Lutheranism, you face... uh you face God alone. You, there's no question that you go there with a group of people or will be... I mean, I suppose maybe in some modern Lutheran theology, there's this notion of family in heaven other than the Heavenly Father, but I don't know about it if there is. Um, that's very interesting that he has this... So, so I want to say fixation, that he, he thinks that there's this uh, kind of mirror between earthly existence and the 
necessity of uh, loving your brother and your family and the heavenly existence. How, how does this relate to the notion that we started with, and that is that uh, saints are really just people come from another place? I think that's a fundamental uh, consistency. And one of the things that impressed me as I as I got into the sources was the incredible coherence of what Smith was after. It was radical. It was heretical. For many of his more learned critics, it was laughable. But it was consistent. Mm-hmm. And and if you think about how would you try to map the insights of theocentrism, God is perfect and humans are imperfect, with the potential for the persistence of human relationships, well, one way to solve that would be to say that human beings are in fact not as they appear. Mm-hmm. Human beings are in fact themselves, in some important essential sense, divine. Mm-hmm. And that insight that there is a flattening of this ontological chain of being that was so important for classical science and medieval theology, this idea that God is perfect and has created a hierarchy of beings that goes from archangels all the way down to particles of dust, and that we all have a place within it, but it's clearly hierarchically arranged. Smith flattens that. He basically takes everything from the archangels to the humans and says, no, you're all the same kind of being. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, if you're trying to have a perfect God and a heaven in which human beings can persist in their relationships, not just with God, but with each other, there's got to be something about human beings that makes them in some essential sense partakers of the divine. And, you know, there's a lot that hangs on a few words here because one caricature of Mormonism that's been very productive in the evangelical Protestant countercult traditions of the last two or three decades is that Mormons have an image of human beings as uh, future Olympians, right? That they'll, you know, this dude here, Brother Smith, is Aries and, and Sister Jones is Athena, and they will all they will all get to uh, don the divine tunics and and romp about the universe. Uh, and to be fair to the critics, there are some Latter Day Saints that have that sort of a view. Uh, many. Latter-day Saints, and I think for Smith in in the essentials of what he saw, they were making a statement about the divinity within all human beings that makes it possible for them to continue to love each other, not just to love God standing next to each other, but to love God and each other in a way that wasn't fundamentally blasphemous. Mm -hmm. Now, the trick, of course, for his critics is that maintaining that humans have some essence of divinity in them, that you can flatten this chain of being such that angels and humans are the same species, is itself blasphemous. Mm-hmm. So he never he never escapes from being a heretic or a blasphemer, according to his critics. But he but he manages, I think, to be very consistent and coherent in his construction of that of of a fundamentally of a theology that mm-hmm. humans and angels are conspecific, and that because of that conspecificity, it's not blasphemous to think that they would continue to love each other and uh, and God rather than just worship God standing next to each other. Mm-hmm. Am I incorrect in thinking that uh, Quakerism has this, a similar notion about a kind of divine light that shines yeah. us all? I mean, I, Yeah, yeah. Fox and others talk about yeah. the inner light, and yeah. the inner light is a participation in divinity. Yeah. Uh, a lot of these, it, it's a little bit different uh, in that for Quakerism, they were rejecting formalism, this notion that, you know, the stuffy theologians run everything and everything has to be decorous and there can't be any, quote-unquote, enthusiasm, which is sort of unrestricted 
first reign right. to spiritual power. And for the Quakers, the inner light was a replacement for the canons of church structure or of even maybe the the biblical canon. And it was a direct connection with God that would guide them. I'm not a, I'm not an expert in Quakers, uh, although I have a lot of respect for the tradition. I don't remember seeing that Quakers believed that that inner light uh, represented a flattening of the ontological distinction between humans and superhuman beings. Mm-hmm. It's possible. It's entirely possible. But there is a sense in which there is some overlap between what was rejected as quote-unquote enthusiasm, this idea that you can do dramatic or unexpected things with the spirit or power of God inside you, um, and this radical refiguring of who human beings are that Joseph Smith participates in. Mm -hmm. There are groups called perfectionist groups, uh, and I'm sure there would have been some Quaker perfectionists uh, as well. And those perfectionists do talk a lot about uh, the possibility that human beings could have some form of perfection or could achieve a form of perfection. Mm -hmm. And in the 20th century, there were various theological strands. There's a Catholic theologian named Talhard de Chardin who talked a lot about the possibility that that human beings could become, through some process of divine tutelage and transformation, uh, become beings that were in some sense divine. But for, for the Protestant critics of Mormonism, early on, they saw this as just more enthusiasm, fanaticism, and would have grouped it with the Quaker inner light and Joanna Southcott and, uh, and uh, Wilkinson, uh, mm-hmm. the, uh, the public universal friend, as she called herself, Jemima Wilkinson. Well, I mean, even thinking of, you know, you mentioned lived religion versus the bookish kind, and of course, everyone, yeah. everyone knows the song, This Little Light of Mine. I'm going yeah, to yeah. shine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That was probably, I don't know, but that was probably not written by somebody who graduated from Harvard Divinity School. I, mean, I could be wrong. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. <laughs> but everyone well, knows that song. <laughs> well, they say that the modern Harvard Divinity is a little mushy and a little atheistic, yeah, so you never know. But, wouldn't know. But certainly not 19th century, I would think. Yeah, uh, I, I think that's Harvard right. Divinity. Yeah, I think that's right. So um, how, you know, maybe you could explain to me that in, in, in its maturity, form that is before Smith is killed what is the Mormon conquest of death how do, how do you how do you actually do it if you are a Mormon yeah according to the Smithian theology and and in in large uh, in in general terms this is maintained at the present day uh, Smith believed that there were sacraments rituals that were to be performed in a structure he called the temple that was meant to be a recapitulation of the Hebrew temple Mm -hmm. that was so fundamental to the Hebrew Bible and Hebrew culture and was seen as the dwelling place of God on earth. So Joseph Smith very clearly feels that God has called him to restore Solomon's temple and to restore it in the American New Jerusalem. And in that temple, he believed there were certain sacraments that could be performed that would guarantee for participants that their family relationships would persist forever Mm -hmm. and would take away from them that frenetic worry that they might backslide or that they weren't elect by God in the first place. Mm -hmm. So for Smith, the conquest of death came through the sacraments. Mormons called sacraments ordinances. Uh, Religion scholars would call them rites or rituals. Uh, Whatever term you want to use, they're relatively synonymous in this setting. Uh, So Joseph Smith believed that the temple sacraments or temple ordinances were the conquest of death. And critically, it wasn't just sacramentalism. Not that I have any problem with sacramentalism. It wasn't just that. Smith was saying, okay, Christ, through these temple sacraments, has bought you freedom from worry. Now get about the work of creating the relationships that will persist into heaven. And it was this sense in which knowing that the end was secure gave you freedom to pursue the means 
without neurotic worry over the chance of failure. Mm -hmm. So the freedom to create those relationships. And this is an old debate. What will happen if people know they're going to be saved, right? Marvelous Anne Hutchinson, so beaten down by the Boston elders and uh, really taken advantage of in the aftermath of a devastating stillbirth of a child. She was getting yelled at because she was, quote unquote, antinomian. And antinomian is code for doesn't believe that the law and by law, people usually mean the rules that you abide by to be a good church member, that the law was the point. She believed that God would save you without regard for the law. Mm -hmm. And that meant that the people that decide the law are no longer in charge of you. And I think that's one reason that Anne Hutchinson was so dangerous. Not only was she a woman, not only was she outspoken, but she said, these guys don't control your prospect of salvation. Now, the criticism of Anne Hutchinson as an antinomian, as a rejecter of law, is that as soon as you tell people they don't need to obey the rules to go to heaven, they're never going to obey the rules again. <laughs> and the worry, and this was a common criticism of Joseph Smith in this later period in Nauvoo, the criticism is as soon as you promise people that they'll go to heaven, they're going to be jerks and stinkers and horrible mm -hmm. people. Even though, to be honest with you, when you know people who are religious, you realize that for many of them, the question of whether to obey rules or not obey rules isn't really a question. As part of their religious experience, they act in ways that bring them closer to divinity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they may not ex every box on every legal form relevant to it, but they're also not going to burn the legal forms either. They'll find ways to participate in that community. So in some respects, Joseph Smith was a sacramental antinomian. He was saying, through these rituals, you don't need to worry about all the strictures and rules and legalese that these other ministers are telling you you have to comply with, go about the process of living. And they saw the saints, it, uh, Mormons refer to themselves as saints, mm -hmm. they refer to sort of every human as a saint, like mm -hmm. you said. So the, the early saints, many of them saw this as a chance to just get about the work of doing good things and not worrying so much about the little details. Um, but it's hard to run a society without some rules associated with it. And you can imagine that there were some problems and there were some Latter-day Saints that said, my salvation is secure, screw you. Mm -hmm. uh, even though that's not really what Joseph Smith was after, that is a possibility. And I think in, as in all these debates, there's truth on both sides. Neither has a full monopoly on truth. And, and it's tricky to run a religious community that is in some important sense antinomian. I think it's a matter of tone and in a matter of balance and a matter of compromise. And that, to be honest, that's something that Smith's heirs in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saint, the Saints, the the predominant uh, uh, heir of, of Joseph Smith's uh, ministry, that's something that they've had to grapple with over the century and a half since then. Mm -hmm. How much can we rely on sacramental assurances of salvation, and how much do we need to rely on people obeying the rules? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I don't think it's something that goes away easily, but I think Smith does provide a sort of orientation in these debates. Not that it's a categorical, that uh, it's all just sacramental, who cares what you do, but that somehow in focusing on the power of these rituals liberates you to do better. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like that, uh, it's like that thing about... Um, don't think about a, what a purple elephant, right? And 
you got to think about it, a purple elephant. Or I don't know whether you or your listeners watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer. but I, I, don't, a, I don't watch it, no. Oh, that's too bad. Uh, <laughs> great writing. The, the, acting is, the acting is routinely terrible, but yeah. the writing is fantastic. Uh-huh. And there's an episode where the main character has uh, temporarily the ability to... Uh, to read minds and it turns out to be a curse rather than a blessing because you can't shut it off and one of her close friends discovering that she can read minds uh, all he can do with his mind is say don't think dirty thoughts don't think dirty thoughts don't think dirty thoughts <laughs> and then you know then he thinks a dirty thought right yeah. so at some level there may be a practical benefit to giving people some space that when you constantly think about not screwing up you may be more likely to screw up and more likely to miss life in its richness. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you go all the way to the other extreme, you may end up in some, you know, hallucinogen addled sort of inconsequentiality in a cornfield in Nebraska somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, but somewhere in the middle, as you sort out these questions of focus and emphasis, I think you can find that space. But uh, that's a long answer to your question. The, the fundamental answer is that Joseph Smith believed that the conquest of death came in the creation of eternally durable relationships with loved ones through the aegis and power and authority of his restored Solomon's Temple. Mm-hmm. Let, let me ask one sort of unfair question before I ask our traditional final question. We're about out of time here, but I I feel like I need to ask it. Uh, you know, I don't know many Mormons these days. I don't hang out with them. Uh, there are not many of them in Iowa City. I don't think there's a temple in Iowa City. I'm sure there's not. Um, uh, do Mormons fear death less than other people? I mean, you have a lot of experience with people who are uh, about to die I'm, or are going gonna, to die. Uh, you can defer that question. You don't have to answer that at all. No, that's okay. When I moved from Boston, I thought that I would come to a sort of Shangri-La here in Utah where everybody would face their own death with equanimity and grace. And what I found was that um, although Mormons start with a somewhat larger store, that store has been depleted like everyone else's by the cultural changes of the early 20th century. And so I have seen Mormons die in great emotional and moral agony, uh, just as I've seen people of all other descriptions. Uh, When you see Mormonism work at the deathbed, though, it works in a stunning and beautiful and overpowering way. And I wish it worked that way more often. Yeah. And um, we'll see as we mature as a society. But but no religious community is immune from the influence of its host society. And sure. American host society has been so opposed to understanding death that it's diminished some of the power that Mormonism has. Yeah, yeah. No, I I think that's a beautiful thing to wish for. And I wish for it. Uh, you know, myself and for all of the listeners to this show. Anyway, we've taken up a huge amount of your time, Sam. I could talk to you for about another four hours. Uh, I don't know if anyone would listen, though, <laughs> at least to me. <laughs> I would uh, so, Yeah, I'm sure you would. The, uh, so we've been talking to Sam Brown about his book, uh, In Heaven, As It Is on Earth, Joseph Smith and the Early Mormon Conquest of Death. Uh, let me ask our traditional final question on new books in history. Sam, what are you working on now? I decided, you know, as I gave book talks uh, in uh, both the medical ethics audiences and to general history audiences, I discovered that people care passionately about this. And even if they don't care a fig about Mormon history, they want to talk about older ways that people approach death and the possibility to recover some of that. So I decided that I would write a book called The Lost Deathbed that would talk about the history of the loss of this holy deathbed that we'd had for centuries before, think through some of the problems, and then think through some possible solutions and mm-hmm. some ways to recover something like a holy deathbed. And mm-hmm. it's a book that because there's been so much interest among audience members at lectures that I give, that I'm going to push for a trade a trade audience yeah, no, you should. Uh, to sort of get the message out. Mm-hmm. And then once I finish that, I'm working on... Uh, on a history book about uh, 
ideas about sacred translation mm-hmm. in uh, early Mormonism. But I wanted to get this trade yeah. book about the lost deathbed out first. Mm-hmm. In addition to taking care of your family and raising your children and saving people's lives. <laughs> yeah, my simple answer is my simple answer is Diet Coke, <laughs> which, uh, which shows a certain amount of alertness know, to me. Just, but uh, I, know, I can't have that stuff around. Um, anyway, <laughs> Sam, it's been so great to talk to you, and thank you for writing the book, and thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Marshall. It's okay. been a privilege and a pleasure. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. You've been listening to an interview with Samuel Morris Brown about his book, In Heaven as It Is on Earth. Joseph Smith and the Early Mormon Conquest of Death. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.